The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. The sermon text for this morning is from Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. I'd like to go ahead and turn there. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. It says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary. We uphold the law. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for a time to open your word, to study it, think deeply about it, to draw from it a deeper understanding and appreciation for who you are and what you've done. As we come into this season of thanksgiving for Christ coming to us, taking on the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men, coming to die for us. Our temptation is to be drawn away into the whims and fancies of the holiday season to all of the things that the culture puts in front of our face. But we want to take this time to truly remember what it is that you have done for us. We want from this season to walk away with a deep appreciation an unfailing love for you. Deeper understanding and an enriched worship for the one true God who is mighty to save. So Father, teach us, grow us, open our eyes to see the truth of your word this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. I remember the times well going to school, always, as I've talked about before in here, encountering that teacher that was stern and rigid, but there was the occasional day when that teacher was sick. And when you came in, you got the substitute. Now, there were two kinds of substitutes, and I think we all know what two kinds there are. There are the kinds that come in that are more strict than the teacher you had, and then there are the substitutes that are not so strict. And I've found that it's True, and probably you will agree with me, that most of public school is kind of like Jurassic Park with the electricity turned off, for the most part. And in those classrooms, when the substitute comes in, the kids start to act like dinosaurs where they sort of test the fence, right? And one person in the classroom goes forward as the sacrificial dinosaur, and sort of makes an attempt at the fence to just see. And it could come back really bad. He could get shocked, right? So he maybe does something like wads up a piece of paper and throws it across the room at the trash can, which ordinarily would not be tolerated. But with the substitute, we'll find out. And when the substitute just continues to look down reading her book, all of the dinosaurs know the electricity is off. All right? Everybody starts going wild. The classroom is all of a sudden in chaos. There are no rules. It seems like everything is free. Everybody can do whatever they want. Now, ordinarily, you wouldn't look at a teacher that does that, that doesn't lay down the rules and then adhere to the rules. And every substitute would do that. They would come into the room and they would say, hey, remember there's no talking. Here's the assignment that you got to get done for the day. And they would lay out all of the things. But you can't look at that teacher that lays out the rules and then doesn't enforce them. You couldn't say about that person that they're a good teacher, could you? And as much as we look back on our times in high school or whatever, and we think about those authoritarians that were strict and rigid, probably the ones that you learned the most from were the ones that enforced the rules, weren't they? Those were the ones that we would call the good teachers. They laid out the rules, and then they abided by them. Now, in our text this morning, we have a question that we've got to answer. Now, anytime you study the book of Romans, you do so a little bit fearfully. And the reason is because there are a billion different things that you could talk about in any one verse or passage. And our task this morning is really to stay on track and just follow the one main question and see what its answer is. And that question is, how can God be righteous? How can He possibly be called righteous and at the same time, sinners like you and me go free? How is it possible that God could be called righteous and sinners go free? It's like the substitute who has the authority of a teacher, but then just lets the class run wild however they want. You wouldn't call that good teaching. So how is it that God can be righteous and at the same time sinners go free? In the next four sermons, this one and three more, 
we're going to, which is going to take us all the way up to New Year's Eve, essentially, we're going to be connecting the Christmas story to the Easter story. So we, we really want to see why is it that God taking on human flesh was necessary for our salvation. So each sermon that we do is going to be from a different place in Scripture. So we are going to be a little bit all over the Bible, so to speak. But in each passage, each Sunday morning, our task is going to be the same as it is every Sunday. It's taking that passage, breaking it apart, understanding its meaning, looking even at the context, however briefly, and then applying that to our lives, connecting it to everything that we think and do and say on a weekly basis. So these sermons, we will, in, in these sermons, we'll be seeing many reasons that the Bible gives us for why Jesus came. And so our plan is to preach four of them essentially every season, four new ones every Christmas season. And so hopefully it'll be something that maybe by the time we get through, I don't know, 10 years from now or so, uh, that you would be able to direct your friends back to, your people, family that you're sharing the gospel with. Hey, listen to this one. This might help you answer some of those questions. Or maybe even for you, as you're thinking about why is it that we come together around Christmas and we think about the incarnation of Christ here in the manger scene. Why, why is that so tremendously important for us? Uh, hopefully it will help you connect those dots yourself. Now one challenge in doing this is we're often in the middle of books. So we just drop down right in the middle of what's been going on in the book. And so we have to briefly catch ourselves up on where we are in the text so it, it makes a little bit more sense. In Romans, that's even more difficult. Because if you've ever read Paul in, in any fashion, whether it's Romans or any other book, but especially Romans, you'll see that it's more difficult because the arguments that he's making in the book are deep, they're varied, and they kind of go this way and that way before they come to a conclusion. And so it's, it's very easy to get distracted. But I'm going to do my best. We can all stay on the same page. Let's try to think really hard just for a minute and know that there's probably going to be, in any text that we look at, a hundred different sermons that we could preach but I've only got one, so that's what I'm going for, alright? So as tempting as it is to chase every detail in the text, we're looking at one thing this morning, which is how can God be righteous and, at the same time, sinners go free? And so with that in mind, let's look back at the beginning of Romans. So if you just turn in your Bible a couple pages back to the left, you're going to go back to the very first chapter in verse 16, where I think... Paul is going to give us what is more or less the theme of the book of Romans itself. So you're going to see there in 1, 16 and 17 what I think is something like a theme that he's going to spend most of the rest of the time in the book talking about. So if you look at it, it says this in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now again, just on these two verses, we could spend 
forever looking at them. But I'm only concerned with one main thing. Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel, and he gives two reasons why he's not ashamed of it. And they're both labeled there with the word for, and you can see that in the text there. The second reason is the one that I want to focus on in verse 17. He says, for it is the righteousness of God. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, is made evident. So the gospel, that is, the good news of salvation by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ alone, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Now, none of that is news to you. I would assume that if you were given a true-false test, and there was one question on there, true or false, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, you would probably say true, even just out of instinct. But if you stop for just a moment and think about that, this is Paul making a really bold claim here. Because what he says in our passage, if you flip forward to chapter 3 in verse 21, Look at what he says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the righteousness of God, that means our, our standing in the court. So if you picture a courtroom, and here is God sitting on the judge's bench, and us standing in front of Him, us being declared righteous in that, that scene, our right standing before God, He says, comes apart from the law. In other words, I do not stand there in front of the judge's bench in right standing. I don't stand there in right standing because I have kept the law. In fact, he says in the rest of the book, I did not keep it. Neither did you. Neither did anybody else. And your righteousness comes apart from the law altogether. Here you stand righteous, and it has nothing to do with your ability or inability to keep the law. Now think about that for just a second. That's, that's actually a really bold statement considering there are probably some Jews that are reading this who grew up as law-abiding Jews as Paul himself was. And now they're hearing your righteousness standing in front of the very bench of God Himself by which you'll be judged does not come by your obedience to the law. In fact, you are not a law keeper. Now, we didn't read the part of the book that comes before all this, but Paul has basically been saying that to everyone, to Jew or Greek, that everyone is a sinner who stands under the wrath of God. That's basically the first three chapters and even more of the book of Romans. You're a sinner under the wrath of God. And now, poof, just like that, I stand righteous before God without performing the works of the law. And Paul says, 
it's because of this gospel, this faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, that your slate and my slate is wiped clean. Now, that's all well and good, but you're telling me, Paul, that that reveals God's righteousness? That I'm standing here and my slate wiped clean. And I'm supposed to look at God, the substitute teacher who had the rules, but then just wiped him clean? That that reveals his righteousness? How can that possibly be? He says in verse 22, the second part of 22, he says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This makes it worse. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So if we're summarizing then what we've found so far in this text and in Romans that we've seen, we would have to say this. We have all sinned, every single one of them. We have fallen short of the glory of God, but by God's grace as a gift, He justified us. We have right standing then in front of His holy bench because simply He wanted to bestow grace on us. Now, He's perfectly entitled to do that. He is God after all, right? We can all agree with that. He's perfectly entitled to do whatever He wants. But if there is a law that He is demanding I follow and I do not follow it, and instead of punishing me, he simply just justifies me. How can Paul then say that reveals his righteousness? So kids, if you disobey, children, listen to me. If you, if you disobey, mommy or daddy, they tell you, do this. And you do not do it. And there is no punishment that comes after that. What are you going to do the next time? Like the dinosaurs at Jurassic Park. Right? The fence has been tested. It's weak. All of a sudden, the children are eating the parents. Right? So it happens. Parents? Can you claim to be a clean person, a neat freak, if when you sweep up the kitchen, you pull the rug up and you just sweep the dirt right under it? Man, your house is so clean. Why is it so... I'm just a neat freak, man. You know, that's, that's just who I am. It's part of my nature. But yet it seems like that is what God has done here on the surface. All have sinned. We've all fallen short of His glory. We all deserve His wrath. And then all of a sudden, everything is wiped clean and we're forgiven. It would seem that neither can God be called righteous if our sin were to merely be swept away. Ezekiel 18.4, the last part of it, he says, The soul who sins shall die. It doesn't get any clearer than that, right? Now, who's guilty of that? Better yet, who's not guilty of that? The soul who sins shall die. 
Well, even the theme of Romans so far. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 2.5 But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's terrifying. But entirely consistent, if God is going to be righteous and make a righteous standard that we do not follow, then it stands to reason that He is perfectly entitled to do exactly that. To hold us under the sway of His wrath. So then how does the Gospel, where God graciously grants forgiveness, possibly reveal God's righteousness? And the first answer that Paul gives is there in verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. The first answer that he gives is that Jesus came to be our propitiation. Jesus came to be our propitiation. Now you're probably thinking, that didn't help me at all. Maybe you will in a second. As we've already seen, there's a, there's a problem here that you and I are under. We have all disobeyed God's law. And for that disobedience, what we deserve is an eternity in hell. That's the right punishment for offending a holy God. Is an eternity in hell. Here is Romans 2.8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Or Romans 6.23, I think most of us know this. For the wages of sin is death. Pretty clear that that is the right punishment for offense against the Holy God. But the, it's not just Paul. The Gospel also lays this out. The Gospels... People want to go to the Gospels and they want to say, well, you know, all that wrath stuff, we get rid of that from the Old Testament and, and forget about that in Paul. Let's go to the Gospels where Jesus is, you know, peace and love and happiness and everything is fine. But in the Gospels in John 3, 36, he says this right after John 3, 16. You all know John 3, 16. Come down from that in verse 36. He says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. He's held under the penalty of God's wrath for a failure of, dis, of, of obedience. So, a failure of obedience, for, for disobedience, in other words. But then, if you go all the way to the end of the Bible, it gets even more severe. The language gets even harsher. Revelation 14.10, he says this about the unbelieving. He says, He also, that is the unbelieving, will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of His anger. And He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Wow. The language couldn't get any more stern than that. God's wrath could not be revealed maybe in any better way 
than that. But this is the problem that, the, that is presented to us in the Bible, is that the offense of sin against God is justifiable, holy wrath from Him. So the consequences of sin could not be more dire. They simply could not be more dire. But this heightens the problem with our text. If in the good news of Jesus Christ, God is wiping that sin away by His grace, how can He still be called righteous? If that's the wrath that I deserve, I think in all of those texts that we've just read, Perhaps every single one of us could say, I mean, I've been that before. Soul who sins shall die. That's me. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's, that's me. The wages of sin is death. I, I've done that. I've earned for myself death, surely. But Paul says the righteousness of God has been Manifested, it's been revealed through this gospel. If God is righteous, then to preserve his righteousness, it would seem that he has to kill me or kill us. Because to let me go free would not be righteous any more than if a parent failed to punish a child for flagrant disobedience. How can he call himself righteous if he's the homeowner that just sweeps the dirt under the rug? How can God possibly be righteous if the good news of the gospel merely wipes the slate clean? And the key to this answer is right there in the word propitiation. But what does it mean? What does it actually mean? Propitiation means to appease the wrath of God through sacrifice. To appease the wrath of God through sacrifice. Some translations you may have in front of you might say something like mercy seat, which is not quite right. There's a reason, but again, that's another rabbit trail. We're not going to chase it today. Other translations like the NIV might have sacrifice of atonement, that God put forward Christ as our sacrifice of atonement, which is getting at the idea, but it, it's actually a bit stronger what Paul is saying here. He's saying that Christ is the means of propitiation. He is the means by which God's wrath toward us was satisfied. And there's no other way that it could be. It had to be this way. The point is that Christ's death on the cross reconciled God to man by appeasing His wrath toward us. There's no other way that you could stand rightly in front of God, in front of His holy bench, unless His wrath toward you was satisfied. Period. So understand, though, that this is not the same thing where we would say He canceled our debt. You understand what? cancellation of debt is? There's a sense in which that's true, but that's not what's going on here. The cancellation of debt would mean I have your debt. You owe me. 
And instead of you paying me, I just wrote it off the books. I canceled it altogether. That's not what propitiation is talking about. Propitiation is talking about God actually being paid. And that's the way the debt is canceled. God is actually paid by Christ what God deserves. It's not that the record is just white clean or the dirt is swept under the rug. It's where God is actually paid back. He's saying that Christ actually on the cross there absorbed the wrath of God. In other words, He was punished for you as if He was you. That God took all the things that you deserved and instead of punishing you for it, punished Christ instead. In other words, this cup of wrath that we read about in Revelation, that we just saw in Revelation, that the wicked have to drink, are going to have to drink, which is terrible and terrifying. That same cup of wrath that we read about is not the only time that cup of wrath appears in Scripture. That cup of wrath is the same cup that Jesus drank to the bottom for you. This is where it appears in Scripture. Psalm 75, 7-8. At least one of the places. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That's His wrath. The same wrath that we saw in Revelation, that is the fulfillment of that right there in Psalm 75. But what happens in the Gospels is Jesus comes forward to die on behalf of His people. In Matthew 26, 39, He says this, going a little further, He fell on His face and He prayed saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What cup is he talking about? The cup in Psalm 75. The cup of the fury of God's wrath. That is what Christ is about to drink. It's not that the cup still exists with wine in it for you, and God is just deciding, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to put it aside. No. He's giving the cup to Jesus. And Jesus is taking it with a big gulp and draining it to the bottom. So how does the gospel show God's righteousness? Because Jesus' life from the manger to the cross, is God Himself putting forward the sacrifice that would actually take away once and for all the wrath toward His people for their sin. It shows His righteousness because He didn't sweep it under the rug. Because He actually dealt with it in the person of Christ. He poured it out to the bottom. 
Make no mistake about it. God's reputation was on the line here. He has the reputation of righteous. He has the reputation of holy. And yet, for a thousand years of human history, or more, more than a thousand years of human history, he had tolerated man's sin. That's what Paul says in 25. In his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. In his patience, he had passed over former sins. He had stayed his hand of justice on all those before Christ. Even though he had the right, the moment Moses disobeyed, instead of keeping him out of the promised land, he had every right to smack him dead. The children of Israel, for that matter. Adam and Eve. He had every right to smack them dead, but in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. He stayed his hand of justice on all those before Christ. And it calls into question, is he really righteous? If he's not acting on his righteousness? But when he put forward Christ to be the satisfaction of his own wrath, he puts an end to that question once and for all. Is he righteous? Yeah. How righteous? He killed his own son for you. That's how serious sin was. How grievous the offense was. That he did this for you. But Paul gives another reason that the cross demonstrates God's righteousness and it's this because in the cross God becomes the just and the justifier it demonstrates God's righteousness because God becomes the just and the justifier look at verse 26 it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Now, if he leads off at verse 25, God could have demonstrated his righteousness by slaughtering everyone. True. But the God of the Bible is depicted to us, is understood by us as merciful, as gracious, as slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Now, if he were to slaughter everyone, as he had every right to do, where would be the demonstration of his mercy? Where would be the consistency in his character that he's already told to us if he never demonstrates mercy to anyone? So the only possible solution that we're left with, where God can uphold his righteous standards and yet also be good, be righteous in that sense, good and loving and merciful. The only way that those two things can come together at the same time is for him not to sweep his wrath under the rug, but to actually pour it out on the shoulders of Christ. But to do so in such a way that he doesn't take it out on you and me, but on himself. He becomes the bearer of his own curse, in other words. So Jesus came so that God might demonstrate His righteousness by first bringing down the full force of His wrath on human sin once and for all. But second, by taking His wrath on Himself, 
He leaves himself with no more wrath left to pour out on his people. The only wrath that is left in the cup is the wrath reserved for the wicked outside Christ on the day of judgment. So his people, you and I who benefit by the blessings of the death of Christ, now have been made righteous too. In a way that only God could have done. You and I have been made righteous too. So the gospel reveals that God is so righteous that one, He upholds all of His righteous standards. But two, He's so righteous that He is able to make sinners righteous too. Now, that's all great. Fantastic even. But what does that then mean for me? I'm going to say this as clearly as I possibly can. If you are Christ's disciple, you are forgiven. All of your sins were in the future when Christ died. You are forgiven. Isaiah 53, 5-6 But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9-10 For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. The best news that you can possibly ever give to anyone on Christmas is that you can be forgiven by faith in Christ alone. Surely there must be works. Not to be forgiven. Works are the fruit of one who is forgiven. They do not produce forgiveness. Why? Because Christ said on the cross, it is finished. What did he mean it is finished? He meant the cup of God's wrath toward you is empty. He drank it. 
It's done. The best news that you can give to anyone, even to yourself, is that you can be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Believe. But the world will try. Many in the church will try to appease God through works. We'll do everything that we can and we will think and we will be convinced that my standing in front of God's judgment bench rises or falls on how my day went that day. What I did or did not do Some will try to work to please God, hoping that something they do makes God happy. It's hard for you to hear sometimes that God is happy because of Christ. He's happy with you. Not because of anything you did or didn't do, but because of Jesus and Christ alone. Some will sacrifice even their children living for today, the God of convenience, of self-gratification, or of sexual freedom, thinking that that is going to ultimately satisfy them. It's ultimately going to make them happy. They'll sacrifice all their time to the God of money. Some lay their carbon footprint on the altar of Mother Nature, lest she turn and attack us. And I'm not being funny. That's pagan. All of us see that there is a problem. If you were to approach the most dyed-in-the-wool atheist on the street and you were to say, what's wrong with this place? They're going to reveal their God and how we must appease that God. This is the problem. Because all of us recognize that there is a problem. And all of us recognize that only sacrifice can fix it. And everybody's proposing all these different problems. But only the gospel says the problem is that you stand before God deserving His wrath. And for it, you will merit an eternity in hell because you have offended a holy God. But only the gospel says in Christ and Christ alone there is forgiveness. How? How can I be forgiven How can God just wipe my slate clean? Not by sweeping it under the rug. Because all of the wrath toward you was poured out on the shoulders of His Son. Why did Jesus come? To take the wrath of God for you and for me. So what then do we do? Receive His forgiveness. Do you know how hard that is? One of my children asked me one time, is that it? Yes. That's it. But I, I've sinned. And I know what it is, and it's, and it's egregious. And, I, and sometimes I keep turning back to it. Confess it. You have no reason to hide. It was all known and exposed at the cross. So then what? Trust that Christ's sacrifice was enough for your forgiveness. 
receive forgiveness. Now, what does your life look like if when you walk out of here, you don't walk out of here as one who is a slave to sin, but as one who is forgiven already for sins you haven't even thought about yet? What does your life with God in Christ look like now? What does your relationship with Jesus look like now when you walk out of here as one who has been forgiven for sins that are still in your future? Where you don't have to worry about your relationship being forever severed before God based on your performance. What does your life look like now? It probably looks like one of joyous celebration. Of being found to be in the mercy of God through the sacrifice of Christ on my behalf. That, that mystery of how could I possibly be here? How could I be the benefactor of His mercy? How could I be in that position? That right there fuels worship. That fuels our gathering together and our singing praise. Because for whatever reason, he called me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would only be able to grasp the forgiveness that we have in Christ. As the book of Romans goes on to say, should we sin more so that grace should abound? Absolutely not. If we died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? So Father, we know that what you have called us to is a life of holiness. But as we sit here just for a moment, dwelling on the forgiveness that we have in Christ, who took your wrath for us, I pray that it would bring joy to our hearts. Life to our faces. Happiness to our habits. Father, I pray that you would fuel us with fervent passion for worship. That we might sing praises to your name because you have forgiven us in Christ that we no longer have to live up to expectations of anyone else, but that you have satisfied your wrath toward us in Christ. What an amazing time this is, this time of year to think about that. So I pray that it would fill our minds today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.